And welcome to Reliving My Youth, the show where we look back at pop culture from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. My name is Noel Fogelman. When I first started developing this show, I made a list of potential guests that I wanted on it. Today's guest was near the top of the list, Grammy and Tony Award winner Duncan Sheik. Duncan's self-titled debut album featured the massive hit, Belly Breathing. We talk about his relationship with the song and the pressures of following up that hit. Duncan released a very underrated album covering 80 songs a few years ago. It featured songs from Tears for Fears, Howard Jones, The Smiths, Love and Rockets. We chat about how he made these songs his own and if he received any feedback from the artists that he covered. Duncan went to Broadway and wrote the music for the massive hit Spring Awakening and later American Psycho. We talk about how he got involved in those productions and the differences between writing an album for himself as opposed to writing for Broadway. And he gives us an update of the what's going on with the Spring Awakening movie that's been in development for years. Here's my conversation with Duncan. And helping me relive my youth today is Duncan Sheik. Duncan, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Okay, so you're halfway to your EGOT. You have your Tony, you have your Grammy. What's next? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, cross off that box. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's let's go back way to the beginning. Um, you're a very talented songwriter. How old were you when you first wrote your first song? So you, were you listening to a lot, a lot of Yes then and early Genesis? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. The Peshmo, the Smiths, you're you're in right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, 
basically we're in the same wheelhouse. I sort the Pesh mode over the summer, sort of for fears. They're they're both great. Yeah. Um yeah. I'm I'm gonna jump around here a little bit, but That's okay. Yeah, your covers eighties C D was absolutely brilliant. I loved every like touch, you know, you made each song your own identity. What what was the thought process of that project? Well, you know, because I'm I'm such a fan of those those bands and those artists from that particular era, that kind of particular subgenre, um, and I felt like you know some of those recordings stand the test of time better than others, just because the production was so overtly '80s on a lot of them. And I thought, well, what if you took these things, which are which are great songs in and of themselves? and you just rethought all of the electronic instrumentation as totally acoustic instrumentation um, and, and kind of reorchestrated them in that way, um, what, would it, what would it sound like? And, and what was cool is that they, they all sort of took on this much more kind of mournful quality, but also the sense of kind of nostalgia and something that you heard, you know, in the past as, a, as an adolescent, uh, which in fact is, is what they were. So um, there was something that just made a lot of sense to me in the, in the process of making that record. Yeah, and like fans, including myself, you know, they have probably it's not fair. They feel like they're like protectors of those songs. You know, how dare someone remake them? But you 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 made them like their very own, and which was which was really great. Did you get any feedback from any of the artists? Yeah, I did actually. Um, Richard Butler from Psychedelic right. Furs. Uh, paid me the very high compliment of saying that it sounded like Nick Drake covered uh, his song. So oh, wow, okay. Sweet. <laughs> um, and uh, Howard Jones and I are, are, are good friends, and we're actually both practicing Buddhists, and I've, and I've toured with him before, so he was really sweet about it. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's a funny thing that I wish more people had heard that record, but... Um, I do, I do like, you know, over the course of the past six or seven years since it came out, um, it's funny, I get a lot of people who tweet me about it and stuff like that, so I'm glad it's out there. Right, yeah, and it's, you know, it's, it's evergreen, so it'll, it'll be out there and people can just discover it whenever they discover it, pretty much. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, you know, my philosophy about covers has always been, if you're going to do a cover, you, you really should try and make it a, a different thing. Like, when... For example, when, when, when Gwen Stefani did It's My Life, the Talk Talk song, it's like, it's almost like the exact same, same song as yeah. the original <laughs> Just like, why do you, I'm not, you know, no offense to Gwen Stefani, right. but like, really, why do you bother doing that? Um, to me, it's all about making it, making it your own. Yeah, exactly. And um, you mentioned Howard Jones, who's absolutely one of my favorites. Uh, you kind of, I saw him in, I don't know, over 20 times already, but he was in uh, Long Island, I think it was Bayshore, Long Island, and you actually opened up for him. It was kind of a surprise. You surprised the crowd. Yeah, it came out. It, it was great. I met Howard once. Such a nice guy. Had a had a nice conversation with him. How did uh, you first meet him? Well, so what happened was, um, this is maybe a little bit of a longer story than I should go into, but I'll try and, I'll try and make it concise. Right. When, when I was going to make my first record, um, uh, it, 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 I got signed by Atlantic in 1994. Oh, so, yeah. and, so you had Rupert Hine, right? Yeah, so in yeah. 1995, I met with Rupert Hine, and we, you know, we decided that we were going to work together on my first record. 
Buddhist meeting in in Maid, this place called Maidenhead, which is sort of thirty miles north of London. Um, and at the Buddhist meeting, you know, sort of by by total coincidence, um, Howard Jones like played a song and sort of gave what we call like gave his experience, at, you know, as a at, in terms of his practice, his Buddhist practice. And so I went up and I introduced myself to him. Um, and, he, you know, he couldn't have been nicer. I mean, he didn't know who the hell I was, but then he, he sort of put two and two together that I was the artist that Rupert was going to be working with and making, making my debut album. So, you know, we ended up, like, spending the day together, and I, I, I think he took me out to lunch, and we went to his, his recording studio, and he listened to some of my demos, and he just could not have been a sweeter guy. Um, and, you know, we've sort of been pretty friendly ever since and and now you know his son is a, is a young theater director and so I've actually ended up working with his son a little bit on various theater projects too so um, it's they're, they're a really incredibly cool family oh that's great that's great I, I believe he's going on tour in, in the spring and he's kind of doing like stories about the song so that should be a pretty intimate thing I hope to get to it yeah yeah. So then, also on that album, you also had one of my favorite singers as well as Rachel Yamagata. Mm, yeah, and, and cool. yeah, she she was really good. And like, shout how um how did you collab first collaborate with her? Sometimes I find you doubt my love for you, but I don't mind. Why should I mind? Why should I mind? What is love anyway? Does anybody love anybody anyway? What is love anyway? Does anybody love anybody anyway? Bye. 
love anybody anyway What is love? Yeah, totally. And and you toured with her a little bit as well, right? Yeah, she's great. How um how did you end up getting so big in Indonesia? That's a, a, a question that I would never be able to properly answer. <laughs> Speaking of the, the you know the first album where people obviously were introduced to you, how um how long did it take to write those songs and were any of those kind of like autobiographical?
Dear Diary, this is what happened <laughs> to me today. And this is this girl that doesn't like me anymore, and I want to slip my wrist. Because, you know, I mean, it's just all kind of, it's all this, your, your own kind of naive 20-something-year-old experience is really all you have to write about. So um, I kind of, you know, I find some of it a, a little cringeworthy, you know, these days when I listen to it, but I understand that it was, it was coming from an incredibly earnest and sincere place. Right, exactly. Yeah. And you know, I guess you're supposed to grow with each record, right? <laughs> Exactly. So I'll, I have to mention it, of course, you know, Belly Breathing, a huge hit. What is, like, your relationship with the song now? Well, I know what you're doing. I see it all too clear. I only taste the saline. Kiss away your tears You really had me going Wishing on a star The black holes that surround you Are heavier by far I believed in your confusion So completely torn It must have been that yesterday Was the day that I was born There's not much to examine Nothing left to hide Yeah. 
perfectly fine. I, I didn't play it for a long time. You know, I was like a, um, you know, as a sort of a, a radio head acolyte. I was like trying to follow in the pathway of not, you know, that I'm not, they never play creep or like plastic trees, you know, and that, so I thought, you know, this is like, why should I play this song? It's not, you know, it doesn't really represent who I am as an artist. And I didn't play it for a long time. But then, you know, after, after Spring Awakening came out and I, I seemed to have, you know, a little bit more of a broader set of fans, um, I had kind of softened up about it. Now, and now I, I play it shows all the time, but I kind of play it in a, in a different way. It's almost like I'm covering, covering my own song at some level. Right, because I mean, every artist is, has a different kind of relationship with their like you know, big hit or what they're well known for. I saw it, Fiona Fiona Apple once, and she basically introduced Criminal by basically, saying, okay, here's this piece of shit, and then she just started playing yeah. the song. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people do that to their detriment. You know, I mean, I I probably was dismissive of it in a way that was not a good look, and I know, um, <clears throat> you know. There are artists who do it all the time. What's that guy? The guy who wrote uh, someone you knew. Um, oh, Gautier. <laughs> yeah, Gautier. Like, you know, he he would do that. He'd go on stage and sort of and sort of um, denigrate his own song, and it's really kind of a pretty stupid thing to do as an artist. But I didn't know that then, and so um, I, it's the benefit of experience where you have to be kind to your own work. Now, your debut album, Win Gold, how much pressure was on you by the record company to create another Bailey Breathing? Certainly at that time in the late 90s, being someplace like Atlantic Records, um, there was a, a very uh, a very kind of commercial and radio-driven sensibility that they wanted me to uh, inhabit, and they were not terribly interested in me um, doing some of the more arty things for that that I was interested in doing. And of course, you know, I sat there the whole time saying, you know, the only, you know, the only bands and artists that I listen to are Bjork and Jeff Buckley and Radiohead and, you know, and you want me to sound like some top 40 trash and I don't want to do that. So there was, there was some headbutting and, and, um, there were some screaming matches and there was, uh, you know, a fair amount of drama around that time but I'm, I'm proud of that record and, and so um, you know I, I, of course it would be great if it, if it had sold if it had also gone gold or platinum or whatever but I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I sort of dug my heels in and, and made the record I wanted to make
yeah, I, I, I was one of the ones who purchased it, of course, and it was I, I enjoyed it. Um, each each one of your ones, as you kind of grew older, sounded you know different and kind of had its own identity. Uh, how, when did you um, leave Atlantic Records? Well, so what happened was I, I made that second record there humming, and you know right. because at the at the time you know it only it only sold a hundred thousand copies, but I mean you know if you're an artist and you sell a hundred thousand copies of a record today, like like you're you're doing amazingly exactly. Well. So, but at that moment, that wasn't like a big number, and so I said, look, I really want to make this much more arty, farty record that's like all string arrangements and woodwind arrangements and acoustic instruments. And so um, they they allowed me to um, to kind of um, to go over to Nunsuch for this one record, um, which was Phantom Moon, um, with the sort of with the understanding that I would then come back. Um, I would come back and make a pop record for them after that, which which became daylight. Right. I'm on a high, on a high. There's nothing more to it. We are the sea and the sky and the blue that runs through it. Yeah. And there are some who say there are so.
there was a, you know, in a way they were very, I have to say, Atlantic was really, really good about letting me stretch and do these more artistic endeavors. Um, but I think, you know, after Daylight, you know, didn't didn't perform as well as, as they had hoped. It was sort of like, well, this is, you know, maybe this relationship should, you know, should be over. Right. <laughs> it was very mutual and amicable. And, you know, Ron Shapiro, who was the co-president of the label, is still a really close friend. And so, you know, it was just, every, you know, I think every, every relationship, whether it's a business one or a creative one, it sort of runs its course. Right. So is that when you kind of veered off into the more theatrical uh, side? Well, so, right. So, in fact, when I was writing um, Phantom Moon, um, I, I wrote that with Stephen Sater, right. who was my, my collaborator on Spring Awakening. And it was around 2001, um, when we're actually 2000, when we started talking about doing Spring Awakening as a, you know, as a piece of musical theater um and uh and, and yeah so i at that point I, I was i was jumping into doing theater stuff as well as making records pretty you know pretty intensely um and and we did you know even though it took six years for the show to get produced we did you know many 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 workshops um uh, with with you know we went to sundance and we went to la jolla rep and we did workshops with the roundabout theater in new york there was like a lot of development during that time so yeah i was doing sort of doing both god i dreamed there was an angel who could hear me through the wall as i cried out like in latin this is so not life at all help me out out of this nightmare then i heard her silver call she said just give it time kid i come to one and all she said give me that hand please and the itch you can't control let me teach you how to handle all the sadness in your soul oh we'll work that silver magic then we'll aim it at the wall she said love me make you blind kid but i wouldn't mind at all it's the bitch i'm living the bitch just the bitch nothing going on just the bitch yeah it's the bitch i'm living as someone you can't stand see each night it's like fantastic tossing turning without rest because my days at the piano with my teacher and her breast and the music's like the one thing i can even get it all those breasts, I mean, God, please just let those apples fall. It's bitch of living, bitch, ah, 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 nothing going on, nothing going on. Just the bitch of living, asking what went wrong. Do they think we want this? Oh, who knows? See, they're showering in gym class. Bobby Miller, he's the best Looks so nasty in those khakis Got my whole life's like some test Then there's Mariana Whelan As if she'd return my call It's like just kiss some ass, man You can screw them all Sensing God is dead It's the big 
started to bring a younger generation of theatergoers back to Broadway. Now you have Hamilton you. doing Very that, much. as well as the Spongebob show. Was that one of your goals when you first set out to make Spring Awakening? I think that um, you simultaneously have two thoughts in your head. And, you know, because I had never worked in the theater before in that capacity, and I, and I, didn't, I didn't know what to expect at all. So part of me is is wanting to be really confident and 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 probably a little bit arrogant and pretentious like oh this is going to be the most amazing thing and it's going to revolutionize broadway and then another part of you simultaneously feels like oh this is the worst thing i've ever done and everyone's <laughs> going to laugh me you know laugh me out of the business um and both of those thoughts and feelings sort of existed simultaneously um and, and luckily it was it was more of the the, the former than the latter, but um, uh, it, it, it was a lot of hard work to get there. And, um, you know, I, of course, I, I give Steven Sater and, and Michael Mayer, uh, the director, a, you know, a huge amount of, of credit for, for creating a really unique uh, piece of theater that I, yeah, of course, I do think it's had a pretty big impact on, on, on the way people think about what a Broadway show can be. And it's been all over the world now, um, and I'm sure you've to, you know been to openings all over the world. Where's some like the most exotic place you've been where it's, the show's opened? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've you know I went to see it in in Helsinki. I think was the first one that I saw it like in a in a in a totally different language, and that it's just re- it's actually really cool to hear these things sung in You're different right. languages because it just sounds you know it sounds so different and. and and cool, but you know, I've been, you know, I've been to in Tokyo, Japan. I've been to Mexico City with it. Um, you know, it's been all over Europe. Uh, it's been, you know, it's been in Korea. It's been in Brazil. Um, so, and then you know, all these productions all over the states, colleges, and 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 you know, community theaters. And, hmm. You know, I think at any given time, you know, I think there's probably like. 70 productions of Spring going on this year, you know, so it's, it's, uh, it's this amazing thing that's just a gift that, that keeps on giving. Right, exactly. And uh, the movie's being developed, correct? It is, it is. It's, it's taken forever, and we're, we're still kind of searching for uh, uh, the right director, um, but there's some interesting conversations happening about it right now, and it's... Um, Playtone is the production company, you know, it's Tom Hanks' production okay. company, and they've, they've been really supportive, and um, so hopefully the, the stars will align, and um, and we'll get to make that movie sooner than later. Hopefully the TV, this TV show on NBC will help kind of bring bring it back into the, the wider public consciousness, um, and, and maybe we can get the movie done after that. 
Yeah, that'd be great. So then you can go from your Emmy to your Oscar and complete, you know, the. Well, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that that would be, uh, yeah, from from your mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so then you went from one period piece with uh, Spring Awakening to another one, uh, American Psycho. Uh, great book. Uh, interesting movie. How did that come about? would be pretty pretty interesting uh, what happened why didn't it uh, be as successful in New York Um, 
were in a very, very, very tough year, competitive year, um, where we, it was clear that Hamilton was going to sweep everything. Um, and and if I, you know, if, if I were to do it all again, I would have waited a year to put the show up and not been in the same, <laughs> and not been going up against Lin Manuel. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so, so now you're working on Secret Life of Bees, right? Yes, yeah. Um, which is going really incredibly well. Um, Sam Gold is the director of the piece, and he's a really cool young director who's done some amazing stuff on Broadway the past couple of years. Um, Lynn Nottage is writing the book. She just won her second Pulitzer Prize. And um, Susan Birkenhead is doing the lyrics. And um, so we're, it looks like we're set to go into the Atlantic Theater next year. So um, the Atlantic Theater is actually where Spring, where Spring Awakening started. Oh, good. So I'd be really, really happy to be back there in that space um, in early 2019. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about it. That's great. Now, uh, interesting question. Like, I, what's the difference between like writing a, a song for an album and like composing for the stage? Well, I think, you know, the, the main difference is that you're when you're writing for a piece of theater, you're obviously um, writing a song that's happening in the context of a larger narrative, and it's being sung by a particular character or set of characters who who are you know, trying to express whatever emotion they're trying to express. So it's, in a way, it's like the opposite of being a singer-songwriter and writing your kind of autobiographical first album. It's like you have to you have to inhabit the headspace of, of these other, you know, of these other characters. And, and that's, in a way, that's really freeing because um, it just gives you this much broader palette. You know, I, I would never write... You know, I would never write a Duncan Sheik song from the perspective of a serial killer, right. but I, you know, I got to do that in American Psycho, which is like a lot of fun, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so that's that's the cool part. But I think there's a, you know, the, there's one big aspect of it where it's exactly the same thing, where it's just you're trying to write a great song that's going to be exciting or moving or thrilling to an audience, and you just want it to be a great a piece of music that people want to hear over and over again. And, um, you know, sometimes you succeed in that and sometimes you don't. Right, exactly. Uh, I actually had a conversation with a writer once who told me that he doesn't believe in writer's block. He just says he he either writes or he doesn't. Do you kind of describe to that philosophy? I I understand what he's saying. I will say that, that when I when I'm not feeling inspired, I definitely try to step away from the guitar or the piano or the computer or, you know, I step away from, get out of the studio, stop fiddling around with Ableton and Logic and like go to a, you know, go to a museum, go watch some movies, go binge watch some TV shows, go read a book, go do anything else but make music. And then, you know, hopefully, um, in a day or a couple of days or a week, you know, you're, you're, you're ready to kind of jump in and, and the ideas start percolating. So, I'm, I mean, I'm thankful I've never had writer's block for very long, but it's but I'm kind of disciplined about not forcing myself to write when I don't think that I'm in the right headspace. Yeah, it makes sense. I've, I've been there and I just, you know, walk away because I'll be staring at yeah. the screen, you know, for hours. 
Yeah. So then you're you came back with your, your latest album, uh, Ledger Domain, Ledger which Domain. Ledger yeah. Domain. Yep. And it's I, I love it. It's you know both got a little electronic on one side, a little acoustic on the other. Um, yeah. How um how was that like thought about and the electronic part? It's 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 kind of I would I'd say fitting for right after American Psycho. <laughs> You know, even since Daylight, which has sort of touches of some of yeah. that EDM stuff in there, and there are a couple of those songs were remixed by some really big EDM DJs. Um, and so it's something I had been wanting to do for, for a decade. Um, and it's just once, once I was working on American Psycho and got kind of much deeper into Ableton and, and into programming and, and getting back into these sort of analog synths that I, that I had when I was a teenager, um, but using them in the context of some more, you know, recent technologies, um, it just became a sound that I was much more excited about, and 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 the sort of the hybridization of of analog synthesizers and drum machines and then acoustic instruments is really fascinating to me. If you can get that balance to happen in the right way, um, I think it's a really um, interesting and unique sound. It's not, you know, it's obviously I'm not making like big Vegas EDM bangers, <laughs> but it's just sort of like trying to find, you know, using some of the colors and, and textures and sounds from, from you know, house music and, and, then, and, and then fusing it with a, with a more, um, I don't know, almost like folk music kind of aesthetic. Guess we did the town, you could see we were a sight We were taken up and taken down until we saw the light There's no use in denying we were pretty black and blue The expression on your face says, hey man, what can you do?
you look at it closely, here's what you will find. Boy who loses way and a girl who will not mind. Would anyone have guessed we'd fall in love even more, never less? record now you're doing it for yourself pretty much you don't not doing it for the critics and you don't really care what they think i'm sure you want the fans to like it but you're doing it pretty much for yourself right yeah totally i mean that's the you know the i guess the <laughs> the one benefit of like not selling millions of records every time you put a record out <laughs> is that you really can just do it for your own you know your your own sense of your own artistic uh thoughts like on say like you know the online streaming sites like spotify you know pandora Right. <laughs> 
I do think there needs to be an adjustment um, to how th that equation works and somehow, you know, artists get paid a bit more and maybe the, pe the people who are streaming um, might have to kind of, you know, pay out a bit more um, because, you know, if you're, I mean, if you're listening to Spotify without, um, you know, without the subscription, you know, you're listening to thousands of songs without even paying a penny. Right. I know there's some ad, re there's ad revenue, but it's just, it seems, it seems often it devalues music to some extent. Um, so, but it's the way the wind has blown and, and, and um, uh, you know, I, I just hope it, get, it becomes more equitable ultimately. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I subscribe to it. I, I pay each month. It's for me. I understand where you're coming from. It's also a good way to discover new artists. Yeah. Which, you know, which you, yeah. you normally you wouldn't find because you can't listen to you know terrestrial radio anymore. But it's yeah. you know it's I, I understand that your know, album sales are you know in the shitter now pretty much. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's terrible. I mean, no, you know, people don't don't buy records, but that's you know. It's, to me, it's only—it's really only terrible in the sense that I, I enjoy listening to a record as a whole because I'm just somebody who grew up listening to music that way. Right, but me too. I also, yeah, you know, I understand that somebody who was born in, in you know, nineteen, who was born when my first record came out, they—they they don't listen to music that way for the most part. They—they, they, you know, that a lot of people just listen to songs. And that's cool too. I mean, it's you know, it's like a return to the to the fifties and early sixties on some level. Um, uh, so, I mean, I, again, I, I would never criticize it. It's just a shame that the longer form um, object doesn't get as much attention as it used to. That's my slightly sadness. Right. <laughs> All right. And uh, last question: uh, Do you remember where you were when you first heard uh, Billy breathing on the radio? I yeah, I was. I was in. I was in the, uh, it, it's, a, it's almost like a totally cliche story. Like I was in the BMW of my A&R person, uh, that my A&R person had, who was like driving me around LA. And, um, you know, we were like going to get sushi in LA <laughs> and then Barely Breathing came on the radio. <laughs> so it was just like right out of central casting, you know, like uh, <laughs> LA music business nonsense. <laughs> That's funny. But it was nice. Yeah. Uh, this wasn't the first time I heard it, but uh, one of the probably most interesting places I heard it was at the, my dentist's office while I was getting root canal. Oh, wow. Well, I'm sorry. I hope, it didn't, I hope that pain has not followed you. <laughs> oh, no, no. It was, it was fine. I mean, it, it, it could have it been a lot worse. It could have been different others, you know, yeah. another artist, but, you know, it was, it, it was fine. But, Duncan, thank you for a few minutes today. I really appreciate it, and uh, good luck. And a special thanks to Duncan for joining us today. You can check out his website, DuncanSheet.com. You can follow him on Twitter at TheDuncanSheet. You can also follow me on Twitter at TheFirstNoel19. You can like the page We're Living My Youth on Facebook. Go to iTunes, check out past episodes. While you're there, you can rate and review the show. You can find me on SoundCloud, Podomatic, soon to be Spotify. Special thanks to everyone who's listening. I can't do it without you guys. And be on the lookout for another episode of Reliving My Youth real soon.